Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 10th chapter, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And may the Lord bless these very central words to our own sanctification, our own life with Christ, to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring them alive. Our dear Lord, sometimes the most profound statements just kind of sneak up on us. And we really don't realize what you're saying when you say it. But I just pray this morning that we will truly understand the priority that you're putting forth here, that the solution that you're putting forth, the far-reaching nature of the image that we have in our minds of Mary sitting at your feet. I just pray that this will be something that resonates with each one of us and that we, we look for ways in our own lives to apply them. We'll give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, some of you know this, some of you don't. Um, The ancient Hebrew calendar was what was known as a lunisolar calendar. Um, We have basically two different ways to go at telling time. One is a lunar calendar, one that um, is based on the phases of the moon, and usually every 28 days it rolls over. And then there are solar calendars, like the ones that we follow, where it really is the map of the time it takes for the Earth to make a full uh, trip around the sun. And that's how we tell time. But the Hebrew calendar, and it's not the only ancient culture that was like this, had what's known as a loony, uh, a loony solar calendar, which means that it's kind of based fundamentally on the lunar phases, but it takes into consideration the position of the sun in the sky. Now, it's extremely complicated, and I'm not about to to take time to try to explain it to you. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because this explains why some of the dates, some of the feasts that are listed for us in Scripture are movable feasts. In other words, they move around on the calendar. Passover is a a good example. In 2021, the week of Passover began on March 27th. In 2022, the same day began on April 15th, two weeks later. This year, it started on April 5th, right in the middle. So what we see is because of the way that they tell time, they have movable feasts that move around. But we also have, in the Christian experience especially, we have immovable feasts. In other words, Christmas. Christmas is on December 21st. <laughs> um, okay. I, 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 honestly, I promise you, I do know when it is on December 25th, no matter 
what the day is, what, what, what the position of the moon is. It doesn't matter. It's on a particular day of the year in that calendar, December 25th. It is an immovable feast. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, it's actually kind of central to what we're going to see this morning. We have two women, two sisters actually, who are pursuing two different feasts. One of them is a movable feast. Martha is interested and consumed with a feast that will happen today and the next day and the next day and the next day. And that since it is a movable feast, it will pass uh, from all remembrance for the most part. Mary, on the other hand, is pursuing an immovable feast. She is feasting on the bread of life, feeding her soul, and it is a feast that will never be taken away from her, as Jesus will say later on. It is, in that sense, an immovable feast. And Jesus is going to prioritize those two feasts for us. They're both Christian endeavors in the way they're presented. But Jesus is going to show us that the preeminent one is the immovable feast. And, of course, that will beg the question with all of us. What do you spend your time doing? Which one of those feasts are you pursuing? The movable feasts of this life or the one immovable feast? Now, with that in mind, let's put this uh, in its context. This is one of those passages that I could literally spend the morning just talking about the context, uh, context that it is in. But I'm going to limit this uh, and whittle it down to a little bit of what has passed behind and a little bit of what is coming before. Now, what has happened behind? I'm just going to focus on the encounter that Jesus had with a lawyer, a, a, a religiosity kind of a, a lawyer who thought that he had it all down because he quoted the Shema. But anyway, he asks the eternal question of Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? A question that all of us must consider at some time before we pass from this world. It's the greatest question, and you must have the right answer. Well, nonetheless, he asked, and Jesus prompted him to respond by quoting Scripture, which he accurately did. He quoted from the Shema, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19. Now, thinking that he had the first part of that, which is actually the greatest commandment, Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 22. When he's asked this question, he answered it exactly the same way, but he says this is the first and greatest commandment. That, that lawyer just kind of skipped over that and wanted to argue about the second one along the lines of what, uh, who's my neighbor? Now, what he missed in that is that when Jesus asked him to recite those words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he turned to the man and said, do this and you will live <laughs> perfectly 24 hours a day. Your entire life, from the time you take your first breath to the time you take your last. You want to know how to inherit eternal life on your own without a Savior? That's the way you do it. 
And, and of course, we looked at that very negatively last week. In other words, we were pointing out what, it was impossible. No one can keep that. And so, therefore, religiosity or the external religion that this lawyer was pursuing simply was not going to save anyone. Now... I don't know if you remember, but we kind of, that was a fluid discussion, or fluid, fluid discussion that occurred from the sending out of the 72 into that. And I want you to see that there's a fluid flow of those same kinds of thoughts into the discussion we're going to have this morning. There's not really a break. In fact, we are going to see Jesus in their last verse for this morning answer the lawyer perfectly and completely. He's going to answer. He's going to give him the answer to the first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so it's going to, to flow, and we're going to look at it very positively this morning, and particularly that first part of that first question. Now, let me just say a few words about what's going to happen after this. When I first realized this, I just kind of sat back, closed my Bible and said, Luke, are you really that brilliant? <laughs> are you really that smart? Did you really do this for our benefit? Now, of course, I know he's being driven along by the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice something about the image that we're going to form in our minds this morning. Those of you who have been here know that we've been making our way through the book of Luke. We have just finished his well, we call it either the first or the second. If you separate out the nativity, it's the second. But the first great segment of his book is called the Galilean ministry. And during that ministry, his focus was to introduce Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, as the supernatural, miracle-working, divine son of God. So those miracles were very paramount in that first part of the book. Well, in the 51st verse of the ninth chapter, we learned that Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem and his departure. So the departure is coming up, and that means his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, um, ascension, and coronation. All of that is wrapped up in his departure. So that becomes forefront of Jesus' mind. And towards that end, the next 10 chapters, all the way up to the triumphal entry, are going to be chocked full of teaching. Jesus is going to teach us on virtually every subject that is out there, every subject that is important to the Christian life, to the kingdom of God. Wonderful parables, wonderful teaching. And towards that end, he now gives us an image that we should adopt in order to enjoy the next 10 chapters. And that is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every word. That's what we're going to be doing the next 10 chapters, is sitting at the feet of Jesus as it is revealed to us in the Gospel of Luke, hanging on every word as he teaches us about the kingdom of God and himself. So, beautiful uh, context going backwards and going forwards. Now, with that said, let's go and take a look at this scenario that's kind of right in the middle, and let, let Jesus set the priorities, the kingdom priorities for us. So notice the way this starts out as Luke sets the scene in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. 
Now, there's some things that I want you to see in that. Luke uh, is, 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 is setting the scene for us, but he's doing it in the vaguest of terms. And he does this purposefully. And I know he, he doesn't want you to notice any of the details that I'm going to spend a few minutes telling you about. Um, and the reason I'm going to tell you about them is I want you to notice that he's jumped over them so that we can see what his purpose is. Now, the first is a designation of time. We, we actually have. Now, it's an extremely vague designation of time. You may remember when we, when we moved from the sending of the 72 into the story about the lawyer and the parable of the Good Samaritan, there was no break whatsoever. There was no refocusing us that there's some kind of a time that had passed. And the reason Luke did that is he wants us to keep those thoughts that came out of that, that evangelistic outreach and the, the kingdom of of, of Satan falling apart. He wanted us to have that flow into that story of the lawyer who was standing on his own religiosity. Well, the same thing is true here. Even though we have a designation of time to a degree, now as they went on their way, well, obviously, they're no longer in a teaching setting in one of the village. They're back on the road again. How much time has passed, he purposely doesn't tell us. So there's a timelessness to this. But definitely, the venue has changed. The second thing that he doesn't tell us about is who's part of this. Now, the last time we had any designation of the number of people involved, well, there were 72 disciples there were 12 apostles. There's a group of women that we learned about in the 8th chapter who are following Jesus and Jesus himself. Man, that is a large group of people. Now, are all those people at Martha's house expecting dinner? Well, well if they are, then it's almost criminal that Mary's not helping her because that's a, that's a crowd, right? That, that's a convention of people. But I doubt seriously that that is what we're, we're seeing here. But again, I just want you to notice how vague Luke is about it. And also notice the ambiguity here. He says, now as they went on their way, obviously a group, but then look what he says. Jesus entered a village. What did they do? Did they split up? Did the apostles go to Jerusalem and find a hotel to stay in? And Jesus went alone to Mary and Martha. I don't think so because there's a teaching lesson going on. So I think that we would be safe in assuming here. I mean, you know how I like to visualize these things. I think we would be safe in assuming that this is Jesus and his 12 apostles and the only other two that we know for certain, which are Mary and Martha. So lunch or dinner or supper or whatever it is, is about 15 people at the minimum. So that's a pretty good crowd nonetheless. But also notice that there's an ambiguity about where he is. Now, this is a simple, this is an easy fact for Luke to throw in. So if he didn't include it, then he obviously purposely left it out. Notice he doesn't tell us the name of the town. He just says a village. Well, we know from John that it was Bethany, less than two miles from Jerusalem, just over the Mount of Olives on the eastern slope. We know that that was the location that Jesus came and went from during the final days of his life. We know that that is where Lazarus was raised from the grave, but none of that is told us. It's just a village. 
So imagine that you are one of the Gentiles that is reading this for the first time, doesn't have the Gospel of John. Well, there is a timelessness and a placelessness, if that's even a word, to this that Luke purposely wants us to have. And, and usually that means that this is going to be a principle. This is going to be something with, with expansive application and it doesn't apply just to one event. Well, with that sort of as our background, let's introduce the two main characters other than Jesus in this. Look at the second half of verse 38. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And once again, I just want you to notice the ambiguity. He's being very, very vague, okay? He's not saying, Martha, you know that Martha, the Martha who's the daughter of Lazarus that Jesus raised from the grave. It's just a woman named Martha. And there's no indication of how close of a relationship Jesus had with these two sisters and their brother. In John, we read this. Um, um, uh, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There was a deep bond between them, but... Luke did not want that to be brought out. Now, we see it later on in the way that Jesus responds to Martha. There's a great tenderness there. But but it's, it's still, there's an ambiguity about who she is. And there's also an ambiguity about... Well, who, who is Martha or, or, or what kind of, uh, of, of presuppositions or suppositions can we make from this text? Well, it is generally understood that Martha is the older sister. And the way that people make that assumption is because she is almost always mentioned first. And that usually is sort of the Hebrew way of, uh, of revealing who's the older one in a sibling situation. And so most people assume that she is the lead hostess. But the text actually doesn't say that. But I think that's a very valid assumption. She's the one with the responsibility. You remember what Palestinian hospitality was like. Well, the lead hostess, the dominant personality, the matron of the house, well, that is on her shoulders. But also notice that it says that she welcomed Jesus into her house. And we want to be a little careful here. Um, People have jumped to all kinds of conclusions about, well, that means how come it's her house? If it was the family home, it would belong to both Mary and Lazarus. Probably Lazarus would have been left the house. So the fact that it's her house must mean that she was married and her husband has died. And Mary and Lazarus are just kind of borders there. But once again, the text does not support that in any way. And secondly, and I'm not going to get too technical with you, in some of the best ancient manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts, that phrase in her house is not included. In fact, in the Greek Bible that I read every week when I prepare these messages, that is not there. It just simply ends with, and she welcomed him. So we don't want to make more conclusions about Martha than we really can from the text. I think it is safe for us to say she's the dominant hostess. She's the lead hostess and she feels a strong responsibility to extend hospitality to her guests. 
But there is something technical in there that I do feel is important. So I want to bring it to your attention. That word that is used, she welcomed him. That is actually the word to receive. And even though it's a different tense, it's the same word that Jesus used earlier when he sent his 72 disciples out. And he says some of the houses you are going to go into are houses where the people are children of peace. Their hearts have been changed. And when you are in a house like that, they will receive you. And if they receive you, you will let your peace settle upon them. But if they don't receive you, again, the same word, then your peace will remain with you and you'll take it with you. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is the, I think that the word re refers to the fact that Martha receives Jesus in that way. I mean, Martha has a deep understanding of who Jesus is. Later on, it comes out when she makes this incredible statement, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world ever much as important as Peter's uh, confession of who Jesus is. So Martha knew who Christ was, and Martha has that kind of of a relationship with him. And so we can assume that this is a family following Jesus. We can assume this is a house of peace in that sense. And the reason that is significant is we are not talking good and bad here. We are not talking about something you shouldn't do and something you should do. What we're talking about is two good things. <laughs> and, and one is better than the other. Jesus is prioritizing. These are both Christian women following Jesus. Both of them are serving him in one way. And Jesus is telling us what the greater way is, what the better way is, if you will. So that's the reason it's important that this is definitely in a Christian context that we are seeing these things unfold. Well, that's Martha. Let's be introduced into, uh, to her sister, Mary, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. Once again, very scant details as far as who Mary is. We don't learn anything about her countenance or her personality. As far as we know in Luke, she's just a brat who's refusing to help her sister. All right? That's basically all Luke presents her as being. It's from John that we learn how tender and how loving and literally how precious she is. Because it was Mary in the 12th chapter of John who brought that hugely expensive bottle of nard and broke it and anointed the feet of Jesus, preparing him for his great sacrifice. That shows the love and concern that she has for Jesus. And just in the previous chapter, the 11th chapter, when she was weeping over the loss of her brother Lazarus, she drove Jesus to tears. Now Martha said almost exactly the same thing as Mary did, but when Jesus sees the broken heart of this tender, precious little sister, he begins to weep even though he knows he's about to resurrect her from the grave. So we don't get any of this from uh, Luke's rendition here. The only thing we know about her is the image that we are presented with here. And brothers and sisters, this is the first image 
of this passage. It's one of the most important images that we will see for the rest of the next 10 chapters. And it is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, fixated upon him and listening to him, absorbing everything that he says, literally feasting on his words. Now, I probably should mention here that there's another importance to this image, and that is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Wait, wait a minute. That's what disciples do, you know? There's not a self-respecting rabbi in Israel that would allow a woman to sit at his feet in this way as he taught. This was something that men did. This was there uh, for disciples. And here, Luke, who continually uh, uh, exalts the cause of women, makes it clear that in this kingdom and in this church and in these teachings and with this Lord, that Mary has ever much a right to be at his feet as anyone else. Sort of echoing what Paul said in Galatians. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For all are one in Christ. And so we are seeing that clearly stated for us. In the way that we see this scene. So so, so far we have a really serene scene here. Don't we? Uh, I mean, we have Jesus and his disciples are there. Jesus is teaching uh, over here in the parlor, to put it in a modern parlance. And, and what should happen is what happens in so many homes, like at Thanksgiving or Christmas. The women are bussing around the table, getting everything fixed up, you know, that the men, which are all uh, usually in there watching football or something. But nonetheless, that, 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 that's what it would normally be. But that's not what happens here. And so, therefore, the serenity is going to be interrupted by a storm that is brewing. And the storm is brewing in Martha. Look in the 40th verse. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Martha is, it's hard for us to imagine what their house must have looked like. It could be the same big room. And it could be that they're over here and Jesus is teaching, sitting down, and Mary is sitting at his feet, fixated upon him. That's the important image. But over here is Martha. And Martha is running back and forth. She's got at least 15 people to feed. We're not told she has any servants to help her. Okay, the kitchen is probably outside or on the other side of the house. She's running out to the kitchen. She's bringing food. There's all kinds of dishes that have to be arranged just so. There's pillows. There's small couches. There are all kinds of things that she needs to do. And she keeps looking up and looking over at Mary. And Mary is just sitting there just in in bliss, listening to the words of Jesus. And so she starts throwing things down on the table and making a lot of noise and sighing and, you know, harumphing, you know, as people like to do to sort of try and get Mary's attention. But Mary's not going to budge. Boy, she's looking right at Jesus. And finally, well, Martha is just going to explode. The storm is going to break. But before we get there, I want you to see something. I want you to see the word distracted. It's kind of an important word here. It's kind of a weird word, isn't it? You wouldn't expect the word distracted. And Martha was distracted with much serving. You would think she was aggravated. She was frustrated. She was overwhelmed. She was occupied. But what does it mean that she was distracted? Well, the word actually means to physically take somebody and drag them away from whatever they are doing and forcing them to do something else. 
And in the context that it is used here, it talks about the attention. It is to take someone's attention that is fixated on something and to grab it and drag them away from that and force that attention onto something else. So that's what's happened to Martha. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that Martha would give her right arm. She would give anything if she could be there at the feet of Jesus listening. In fact, she might have started out that way. But now she has been distracted from that because she's the lead hostess and she has serving to do. So it has pulled her away from that which she would rather be doing and forced her to give her attention elsewhere. Now I want you to notice what this means and and, and how this brings us around. Because what this does is, is it means that this is far more than just a squabble between two sisters because one isn't helping the other. The fact that she's distracted brings our attention to that from which she is distracted. And it brings our attention to Jesus. Jesus is the center figure here. He's the preeminent one. He is the priority. And what Mary is doing is what all of us should be doing. So therefore, that brings the fact that it's a distracted from that activity brings our attention to the fact that, well, that might just be the lesson that's here is that Mary has the better portion. And of course, we'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, we're going to see just a wee bit of an indiscretion on uh, Martha's part. Notice what she says, second half of that verse. And she went up to him, him being Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The first thing that she does is she goes up to Jesus rather than to Mary. Okay? You know, she could have easily gone up, got right in Mary's face and said, Mary, you in here. Okay? Grabbed her by the hair, taken her physically into the room to help her. She didn't do that. She goes to Jesus. Okay? Because after all, Jesus is ultimately the reason for all of our problems, isn't he? We do tend to take everything to Jesus. We blame everything to, uh, on him. You know, we make a mess out of our lives. We ignore him. We follow our own way. We allow the world to sneak into us. We don't pursue him. We don't pray to him. We don't read his Bible. Our lives fall apart, and then we blame it on Jesus, right? That's, 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 there's several of those sidelines here that, that we need to see. But so she goes to Jesus, and the first thing that she says, <clears throat> you don't care. Oh, man, Martha, what do you mean? Do you realize who you're talking to when you say you don't care? Now, because he's not paying attention to something that's important to her, she goes to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. She goes to the Logos incarnate in the Word, the one who came and put aside his divinity in the sense that he took on the attributes of a human being, the one who came here to seek and save the lost, the one who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, the one who John the Baptist says... You are the, I mean, I'm sorry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because she is miffed at her sister, she goes up to Jesus and she says, you don't care about what's going on with me. Now, we don't want to blame her entirely. There are others who do this. Remember the disciples when they were on their way across the Sea of Galilee? 
and they were going their way to Gerasim. The demoniac was over there, and they tried to get the ship across even the middle of a storm. And finally, because they didn't believe in Jesus, they go to him and they say, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Remember what Jesus said in Luke when he got up? He said, oh, you of a little faith. Where's your faith? You see, that's the problem here, folks. Now, before we get kind of self-righteous here and we start looking down our noses at Martha, I want you to hold the mirror of Scripture up and ask yourself, do you ever do this? Do you ever say, God, you're not paying attention to my troubles? I'm hurting here, okay? I have pain. You know, I just lost my job. I, I, I have a terrible relationship with this. I've got this problem. I've got that problem. And Lord, do you really not care? Because if you did care, I think you'd fix it. But because you don't care for me. Oh, man. We're doing exactly the same thing, I think, as Martha is doing here. But that's not where Martha stops. She kind of adds insult to injury. Because she goes up to Jesus after she says, Lord, do you not care? She says, Tell her to help me. She tells the omnipotent God of the universe what to do. I don't care what your will is. I don't care what your plans are for my sister Mary. I don't care what you're teaching about and whether it is the most important thing on earth. What I care about is my supper. And so therefore, if you care for me, if you love me, If you are who you say you are, then tell my sister to help me serve. Once again, I doubt that there's a person in here who hasn't done that a hundred times this year so far. How often do we say to our Lord, Lord, are you really not paying attention to how evil this society is? Are you not seeing the wickedness around? Are you not seeing the wicked prosper and the righteous be oppressed? Are you not paying attention to this? If you really cared for us, if you really loved us, you wouldn't let that happen. If you had really cared for me, you would not have let my loved one die. You wouldn't have let me lose my job. You wouldn't have let this happen or that happen. And, 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 and we, we bring everything in there. We lay it at Jesus' feet and we say, fix it. Or I'm not going to believe in you. That's why Jesus says, where's your faith? It's a matter of faith. What kind of faith and trust do you have in Jesus? Do you not believe that he knows what's going on with you? He's the one who says, be anxious for nothing. He's the one that knows us inside and out. He knows what's going on on the inside. And if he allows you to go through times of pain and hurt, he knows it. He's not blind. And he's not incapable. He's not unable to fix what's wrong with you. If he doesn't do it and you pray and ask him to do it, it doesn't mean he's not paying attention. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It means probably it's not best for you or it's not best for someone or it's not part of his will. So he wants you to trust him and believe in him. That was where Martha was really going wrong. Now, one would think that when Martha makes a blunder like this, that Jesus would, you know, have some pretty harsh things to say. But that's that's not Jesus, and that's not the way he goes at this. In fact, look what he says. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I can just see him. 
Oh, Martha, Martha. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know, I don't care for you. I'm going to hang on a cross with your sins upon me and go to hell for you and, I, and go through the wrath of your father because of what you've done. And I don't care. But nonetheless, he doesn't say that. When he says, Martha, Martha, that's, a, that's tenderness. That, that's a, a loving way to respond. So rather than expecting a harsh reprimand, we're expecting some kind of tender instruction, which is exactly what happens. He, he states the opposite, uh, the obvious. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Anxious and troubled Once again, I just have to apply this to to us. I mean, this is so us. This is so me. It's so you. This is where we live. We're troubled with many things, all right? You're anxious about many things. Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. And, 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 and it's like, okay, so Martha's anxious about her, her dinner. She's anxious about the feast that she's preparing for Jesus. And, and it, it's not working out right for her. So she's greatly troubled by it. What are you anxious about today? What are you troubled about? You know, if you're like me, if you're not anxious about anything in the morning, just give me time. Because I'll find something. I mean, I'll find the recesses of what's going on. I'll, I'll delve around in the dark until I can find something that's wrong, and I'll bring it up, and I'll put it on the table, and I'll focus on it, and I'll get anxious about it. It doesn't matter what it is. We constantly find things to be anxious about, and that's what Martha is doing. And so Jesus is going to give her a solution. He's going to prioritize for her. And what he says next, first of all, he says, but one thing is necessary. Only one thing is necessary. Dear Martha, you are so troubled, and what you are troubled about is a wonderful feast, and I am so appreciative of it, but it is here today and gone tomorrow. There is actually, realistically, only one thing that is necessary. And you're looking at him when you look at Jesus. Two thieves on crosses of their own and Jesus in the middle. And one of those thieves recognizes that Jesus is Lord and says, Today would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And that is the only thing that he needed. Brothers and sisters, notice the brilliance of this. This is the answer to the lawyer. The lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is just making it clear. There's only one thing you need. And that is the logos. The word of God. The living word. The revealed word. The spoken word. The written word. This is what you need. In order to inherit eternal life. And so, he says there's only one thing. By the way, let me tell you something that... Jesus doesn't mean here. And the and only reason I say this is not to distract you, but just in case you read this sometime. People like to whittle down and remove the great meaning of things. And, and there are those out there who say, well, obviously what Jesus is meaning is he's talking to Martha and he's saying, Martha, you're fixing this big feast with multiple courses. I don't need multiple courses. I just need one. Okay, there's only one that's necessary. Just feed me, and that's all we have to do. Boy, is that, is that just simply stripping this of all of its meaning. Because Jesus goes on and he says, 
Mary has chosen the good portion. Now, remember the, the, the visual that we have. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, fixated on his word, listening to every word that comes out of the mouth of Christ. And, and now Christ says she has chosen the good portion. And once again, I don't want you to put this in good and bad, pagan and Christian, worldly and kingdom. These are both kingdom women. These are both kingdom um, endeavors. I do not want to in any way diminish the importance of Christian service. James makes this absolutely clear several places in his book. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. No, this is not belittling that. It is prioritizing. What's the most important thing? Well, the works that people focus on, that the lawyer was focusing on, because after all, he was that religiosity guy. What he's focusing on, that should normally flow from a heart that is in love with Jesus. So therefore, it is the love of Jesus. It is the words of Jesus. It is what he has to say and what it means to your heart that is the important part that will manifest itself in the good works that you're supposed to do. So Mary has the good portion. You might as well say she has the better portion. Oh, (laughs) you... You lawyer who thought that your own goodness would lead you to salvation. No, Mary's got the idea. Mary understands what the Old Testament said when it says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, there are two feasts here. Mary is, fo- I mean, Martha is focused on one feast. It is a movable feast that will be here today, it will be here tomorrow. Jesus will leave, he'll go elsewhere, he will have many more feasts like this. But what is happening in Mary's heart and her soul? She is feasting on the bread of life. And Jesus has already made it absolutely clear in the book of John when he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. That's why he says what he says next, which is, this will not be taken away from her. And I don't believe that what he's talking about is the position that she has gained to be a disciple at my feet, as some people would think. No, he's talking about the feast that she is enjoying, what she is gaining, what is happening in her soul. She is feeding her soul with the bread of life, and that is something that can never, ever, ever be taken away from us because it lives in a soul that lives forever where the things that we do in life will all be gone when our bodies are gone until they're reunited. Well, as I often do, um, as, as we look at this a little bit closer, as well, actually we step back from it, let, let me just make a couple of observations here. First of all, um, I often like to tell you what it doesn't mean when, before I tell you what it does mean. And let me tell you what this absolutely does not mean. It is not, as so many people have made it, an exaltation of the contemplative life. 
The contemplative life was a Greek philosophy. It dates back to Aristotle and others, but mainly Aristotle. And Aristotle became very important in the medieval church after a certain stage. And, and it was that to contemplate, to think of the higher thoughts, to philosophize was the greatest virtue. And so therefore, it is much better to be a monk and go and meditate on a mountaintop or to pursue these great intellectual thoughts these great metaphysical and, and spiritual thoughts and, and, and that's the greatest virtue that you can do that is not what Jesus is saying in the slightest in fact James once again makes this absolutely clear when he says things like but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself that's what the parable that we just read about the good Samaritan made clear that this is a man who loved his enemies and the hypocrites didn't so Jesus is not teaching that there is a greater virtue for those who just sit around and have no action and they don't do anything and they just sit here and think about the higher things of life. Calvin never really had a problem in expressing himself and this was he was a lot closer to this than we are because of the Roman Catholicism of his day but he said this how absurdly they have perverted the words of Christ to support their own contrivance. So that's what it doesn't mean. It's not, a, it's not an exaltation of the contemplative life. What it is talking about, and Dr. Sproul goes right to the heart of this in his commentary on this passage. What it is talking about is Christian sanctification. A hugely significant aspect of the Christian life. Both of these women are followers of Christ. Both of them in one way are serving the Lord. Once again, we are not diminishing what, that, what Martha is doing at all. She was being um, upstanding. She was being diligent. She was taking the hospitality um, um, meaningfully. Uh, she wasn't a- allowing things to go. She was being the hostess that she was supposed to be. Where she messed up was getting angry and trying to force Jesus to do something different than what his plan and his will was in that. So this is not diminishing that at all. But it is to learn, it is to absorb the truth in our souls, in our minds and our souls. Our hearts is the way that we talk about that soul. And, and, and that is the greatest, the most preeminent, the prioritized activity of the Christian experience. It is... The Christian priority, and it is what I mean when I say an immovable feast, to feast on the bread of life, to feed the soul, is something that can never be taken away. That's the underlying lesson here. But you know, when we talk about implementation, when we talk about application, we need to ask ourselves questions like, so how do you do this? Uh, how, how do I accomplish this? 
how is it that I, uh, I, I spend my time doing the things that I ought to do? What is the answer as far as my own sanctification is concerned? Well, sanctification is all wrapped up in the truth. Jesus told the story. Well, actually, he didn't tell the story. He's praying to his father in the 17th chapter of John, that great high priestly prayer. And he's talking about his disciples and he's talking about us. And he's saying, these are the ones you have given me. And, and I've given them the, your word, the word that you gave me. I have faithfully revealed to them. And the Holy Spirit is coming in. He will bring to their remembrance all that I have told them. I am leaving them in this world. Protect them from the evil one. And then he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if we want to know how we can achieve the greatest, most important thing we can do as Christians, it is to pursue the immovable feast of Christ and his words. If you remember, it kind of goes like this. I'm just going to kind of follow Luke's train of thought. The attorney asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus prompts him to recite the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That means your entire essence. You must love God with everything that is in you. That is the first and the greatest of all the commandments, the summation of the law and the prophets. So how does one love God? Through sentimentality, by conjuring up an emotion, by creating an environment where I get the warm fuzzies, and, and that's me loving God. I, I, I feel it in my heart, and that's my expression of loving God. Well, what does Scripture say? What did Jesus say? If you want to love me, if you want to express your love to me, if you want to manifest that love that you actually have for me and for my Father, what do you do? Keep my commandments. That's, that's the, the, the number one expression. Be obedient to the God who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you want to express your love to me, keep my commandments. How do you do that? How do you know what those commandments are? We're not Mary. We're not sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to the words that he says. How do we know what his commandments are? Well, we had a beautiful picture of that not long ago in Luke's gospel. On top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus glorified before them. And on one side is Moses, the law. On the other side is Elijah, the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus, the Logos, the word of God in human flesh. And a cloud comes over that group. And God speaks out of the cloud. Remember what he said? This is my Son, my chosen one. Now what does he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. Mark well his words. Study his words. Pursue his words. Listen to my son. Where are you going to find the words of his son? Once again, the whole bunch of people are going creating an environment, a, sort of a happening 
sort of an experiential way that Jesus is going to talk to me. I'm going to listen for his voice in all kinds of weird ways. I'm going to try to tune into the divine frequency so I can hear what Jesus is saying to me. All of them are extra biblical. But the Bible tells us something different. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We have seen His glory. The glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen the truth. We know the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. So there's one place, brothers and sisters, that you're going to find the truth. There's one place that you're going to be sanctified. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of Christian things that we can do. But it is in the word of God that you are going to hear the words of Jesus. And there is where you can listen to him through the words of Scripture. So let me leave you with this. There are so many things that we can do as Christians. There there are all kinds of activities that the Christian life includes. I mean, we saw that parable of the Good Samaritan, and that really focuses on loving our enemies and trying to live up to that ethical standards, to to be like Jesus, to pursue righteousness as he is righteous, to engage in diaconate, in benevolence, in our local churches, in our local community, global diaconate, to care about people on the other side of the world, to share the gospel in our own community, and to be involved with missions that take us to far-flung places. These are all important aspects of what it means to be a Christian, but what's the priority? What's the preeminent one? What's the one necessary thing? What's the better portion? What will never be taken away from you? It is the time that you spend pursuing the bread of life and feeding your soul with the words of Jesus Christ as they are shared with us in this word from one end of the Bible to the other. So I leave you with a question. I think it's pretty evident from this passage what the great priority for a Christian is. Which of these feasts do you spend your time pursuing? The feast of Martha, bread that'll grow stale in a couple of days and passed through the system, burned off his energy, and then moving on to the next meal? Or do you pursue with abandon, with dedication, the Word of God? Are you deep in the study of the Word? Are you, are you pursuing it? And, and I don't mean just devotions in the morning. I, I don't mean just coming and listening to it exposited on Sundays or in the other venues. I mean, are you deeply embedded in the Word of God? Because that is how you are going to get past that verse where Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled over so many things. Don't wait until the dam breaks. Don't wait until the storm comes to turn to the word of God. Now, it's a marvelous way to get through the storms. 
I'll never forget, dear Pastor Sidwan sitting in the hospital with him as his wife was going through a very, very difficult operation later on in life, and he spent the entire time reading that word of God aloud. And it was comforting to him. It was where he found his solace. It was where he found his strength. But it's not the only time he picked up that book. He spent his life in it. So, dear brothers and sisters, that is the immovable feast. There is but one thing necessary. That is the word of Christ. To follow that is the better portion. And it is a portion that can never be taken away from you. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we thank you for these beautiful little images. Sometimes we kind of skip over them. Um, we, we don't realize that there is a deeply profound thought being expressed here. And I pray that as we go forward and continue to work our way through this book of Luke, that we're going to be able to, to, to hold that image in our minds. That that's exactly what we will do. Um, if, if not already, that we start today, sit at your feet, totally fixated on you, listening to every word that you say. We will give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.